Welcome in to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Uh, if you are a regular listener of this show, you probably knew, have noticed that we're starting a little bit differently this week. Um, I am still your host, Jamie, um, but the music is a little bit different, and there's a reason for that. Uh, if that tune sounds familiar, it probably means that you're a Star Trek fan. Um, this is probably one of the most recognizable tunes, aside from any of the themes, that is, uh, from Star Trek. It's actually from a Season 5 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, The Inner Light. Uh, it is one of the, if not the best episodes of that series, uh, the episode 1, The Hugo. Uh, it's on all the fan favorite lists, it's on top 10 lists of for Star Trek all over the place. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the episode is phenomenal, uh, and that is uh, because of uh, Sir Patrick Stewart's acting, it's because of the writing, it's because of the directing, but it's also because of this tune, this penny whistle flute solo uh, that is just haunting, that is just so beautiful. Um, and today we are talking to Jay Chataway, who was one of the composers for Star Trek, and he is actually the man responsible for this tune. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking to uh, a number of these Star Trek composers. Um, and I guess if you put them all together, all of these episodes, these conversations, it's going to be a little bit like an oral history of Star Trek uh, music on television. Uh, today we're talking to Jay Chataway. Coming up on future episodes, we're going to be talking to Ron Jones. We're going to be talking to Dennis McCarthy. We're going to be talking to Jeff Russo. Uh, Ron Jones, Dennis McCarthy, and Jay Chataway are responsible for a vast majority. Um, I didn't do the numbers, I didn't do the math, but probably at least 90% of uh, the next generation deep space nine voyager and enterprise those three guys basically wrote all the music for those four series um so when i say we're going to be doing a little bit of an oral history of uh you know 90s and aughts uh star trek i'm not kidding these guys are the basically they're the ones that were responsible for it uh jeff russo Coming up on a, on a future episode, he is the composer for Star Trek Discovery, the show that's on right now. Um, but Jay, my conversation with Jay, we, we really just, we covered a lot. I focused a little bit on Star Trek, um, but he has had just an amazing career. We talk about his early days with the Navy band. He was the uh, arranger and composer um, while in the Navy. Uh, we talk about getting into Trek. We talk about writing for Trek. He wrote. Uh, he came into the uh, on the third season of the Next Generation, and he wrote. Um, man, I have the numbers. If you really want to know, I've got. He wrote forty-two episodes of the Next Generation, fifty-nine episodes of Deep Space Nine, spanning all seven seasons, fifty-four episodes of Voyager, spanning all seven seasons, and twenty-eight episodes of Enterprise, again spanning the entirety of that show. Uh, he wrote uh, the first and last episodes of Voyager. He won uh, an Emmy for the Voyager episode Endgame, which was the final episode. Uh, we have a fantastic, phenomenal conversation. We talk about the inner light. We, Of course, how could we not? 
Uh, we talk about the differences in writing between and among the different Trek shows and his experiences and memories of, of working on the shows. Um, it's just a great conversation. So I hope you stick around. I hope you stay tuned. And I hope you come back uh, in the next few weeks for our other conversations about Trek. Enjoy. Jay, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's just it's just a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, I guess I wanted to go back to the beginning to start off. Did you come from a musical family? Um, a, a music appreciation family, more so than um, performing or writing. My parents listened to music a lot. Um, my dad would play like big band music and stuff a mm-hmm. lot for me and he was a big Tommy Dorsey and big band fan so I had a lot of music around me but as far as you know and genetically speaking no it didn't come from there but way back in my lineage there was a, a Chataway around the turn of the past century that was a big um, Broadway type composer and he wrote uh such classics. Uh, he did a lot of lyrics too, but um, there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. <laughs> I know that song. Red, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Red Wing and some other ones. His name was Thurland Chataway. And uh, other than that, uh, I haven't found too many uh, blood relatives that have pursued this crazy yeah. profession. But I'm not sure how we were related. But uh, no, I was like I said, I was surrounded by music. I was yeah. encouraged to go into music, but it was not a genetic. Uh, well, that that was my question because, especially if you didn't come from a musical family or a family of performers, you know that it, it might seem like a uh, particularly risky career move. Especially, you know, I decide I'm going to go to school for music, and this is what I want to do. If if that's not something that's already in the family it might be a little bit scary for your family, for your parents or for your friends. So you, you did get a lot of encouragement, though. Yeah, I did. Uh, when I was in high school, I had like a big band that, were, that was working. Um, it was, oddly enough, it was called the Astronauts. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't know where that came from. No, we, we played a lot of dances and even like as high school kids. So my parents can sort of see that, that this, this was not just um, a futile approach to, uh, you know, yeah. uh, employment or something. So they, they kind of dug it and they said, okay, I, I think my mom wanted me to be a dentist and, um, or something like that. <laughs> so, what was but, your... you know, I, I didn't want to do that. So. Yeah. What was your first instrument? Piano was my first instrument. I started at, uh, age seven. Wow. And, uh, then I couldn't march in the band with a piano. So I started learning the trumpet. So, um, I got a trumpet when I was like 10, and, uh, and I still play, I still play both, um, not very well anymore, but I still <laughs> play, uh, I still have those instruments, so that's, yeah. I own them, <laughs> that way. The originals? I do still have my original trumpet, and um, not my original piano, but yeah. um, I have my original trumpet that I played in high school. Wow, that's it's, great. It's a classic. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Um, Talk to me, uh, you were in the Navy, and you worked with the Navy band. You were the chief arranger and composer, right? Yeah, I was, um, in Washington, D.C., not too far from where you are, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, we just went back um, this past summer, 
and uh, visited the band, got a tour. <clears throat> it's changed dramatically since I was there. Uh, and the facility is much different, but it's still in the same general area. It's in the Washington Navy Yard at the sail loft where they used to make sails mm-hmm. for old sailing ships and stuff. And uh, the band sounded great. I mean, it's still a wonderful organization. And when, when I was there, it was during the Vietnam War. So all anybody that was a really good musician was probably in one of the really top service bands in D.C., like Air Force, yeah. Marines, Army, Navy, and Coast Guard, I guess. Um, so it was a great, great opportunity to be uh, associated with a, that quality of musicians. And, you know, I couldn't blame any mistakes on my on the players anymore <laughs> there would be my mistakes so they were they were excellent musicians yeah i'm sure you learned a lot working with them right well i had to learn to write really fast and yeah. that, that's what kind of got me into you know doing other things because it was a job where like the president's people would call and say hey there's a party at the white house and so and so wants such and such music for the party and you had to write it right then and the band would Sometimes not even rehearse. They would just go to the party and read the notes. Wow. That was it. Yeah, so it was it was a pressure job, but, you know, it was something that was fun to do, and it was it was a great, great musical experience. That That's interesting. You know, when I think about, because especially in this area, you know, the like you said, the service bands, they play all the time. The jazz bands, the orchestras, they play a lot. Um, right. And uh, I, I kind of don't, have the imp- I, I, I guess I had the wrong impression, but you know you kind of have the feeling that looking at it from the outside that they just they just play prearranged pieces or they play standards or classics. So you're saying like you actually like depending on what the request was, you had to write original music. Yes, uh, quite a bit. In fact, my last job there was um, as composer in residence. I was tasked with writing original like concertos and solos for all the great solos were in the wow uh, so, something that that probably only they could play and it's probably true I, uh so my last couple of years i i did oh like a clarinet concerto a sax concerto a piece for percussion a trumpet concerto um one of the cool things we did was for the um, bicentennial um my uh, another guy in the band who we've stayed friends and, and co-workers his name is Wayne Lammers uh, he was a choral guy and a lyricist and we wrote a production called um, <clears throat> The American Celebration and it was traced the history of America through transportation hmm. and it was performed at the Kennedy Center and uh, it was a big hit I mean it was it was a long like it's almost like a two, like a musical it's like two hour musical and uh tracing you know when you think about it in, in like 200 years we went from horseback to to the moon yeah and uh, so the, the music you know represented that and we had um multimedia that was done by the navy photographic lab that accompanied it and uh it was a it was a pretty big deal we used the organ at the kennedy center it was pretty spectacular has that been so, really yeah, has that been released opera- or is it available no, I don't. I think it was a one-shot thing. Maybe the Navy has some archive huh. tapes of it or something. It was never recorded for um, publication or whatever. I think somewhere in some storage unit, they may have a copy on quarter-inch, you know, three, yeah. three and three-quarter speed or something. <laughs> but um, it was it was quite the show and uh, got really nice reviews. And it was you know it was put on by the Navy Department, so. We have a captive audience, so all the Navy people would come, and sure. it was a it was a big event. So it it was a 
a lot of creativity. It wasn't just writing, going in and playing marches and you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Yes, there were there were tough things. I mean, during Vietnam War, there was probably a couple funerals every day that the band had to perform at, and uh, that wasn't that wasn't fun. But, yeah. Um, generally, it was just a great thing, and sort of led me into doing a film because um, the Navy had a, a photographic center right across the river in Anacostia, and they would experiment. Eastman Kodak, I guess, funded this whole thing, and it was government-sponsored, and it probably started out, you know, like a surveillance films and stuff, but then they started producing uh, informational films about the Navy and stuff, and I would write the music for it, and the band people would record the score. Wow. So in a very primitive way, we were sort of a scoring orchestra band thing, and... Um, sometimes would work in professional studios outside of the Navy to record the music for these things. And uh, it was it was quite uh, an adventure learning how to do that. Um, you know, there was no real synchronization skills involved. In those. We'd just write music and hope it would fit. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it, it, it into place. It sounds like it was a real proving ground for you because you're saying it, it prepared you for working in film, but also the speed with which you had to write prepared you probably for television. Yeah, it did, and, and um, I guess the best thing, other than having a, a really good, um, you know, in, a steady income and, and a relatively safe way to spend the war years, um, was I met a lot of people it, as a result of being in the band that went on to uh, go into the jazz world, um, uh, like Stan Mark, a trumpet player, went on the road with Maynard Ferguson, mm-hmm. and that's how I, that was my entree into that world and um that's how that's how that happened yeah. if i hadn't been in the navy i would have that probably would have never come about huh so you also did a lot of work with documentaries national geographic specials creatively speaking how different are they from narrative tv something like star trek <clears throat> well for one thing they um there's always somebody talking <laughs> so there's another there's another instrument involved i mean you sort of have to treat the narrator as an instrument and sort of write around that person uh, because it is it is an, um, sort of like a, an instrumental voice and uh, yet they're talking about important stuff so you know it's like I guess what the, what we all live for those six minute um, pieces of beautiful film where nobody's talking and it's just about the music and the images and there were quite a few moments um, like that and the cool thing about the geographics were that there was a palette already laid down for you. Like I did one on um, Bali, for example. So mm-hmm. it had to be Indonesian Balinese music. And so I had to study that and learn about the instruments. And then your, your palette was already uh, in place. It wasn't like, well, what do I write? Well, you have to write something Balinese. Yeah. Or if it was African, it was obviously African piece and, uh, and stuff like that. So in that way, it was, in a way it was easier because, um, you had much more definition and form of what you're going to do. Do you find for yourself, um, I guess, which which is easier for you to work? Which, which, uh, how to to say this, which way is it easier for you to work, to have something like that that's defined and say, okay, well, this is a show about Bali, so I need to have an Indonesian feel to it, or to have something like a film or a television show which could basically have any sound whatsoever and it's entirely up to you well it's actually easier 
um, if there's a little bit of guidance in front. For mm-hmm. example, um, with space, um, there there's a lot of guidance because there's a lot of people telling you how they want the music to be. Um, if there, if that didn't exist, then that's sort of like a blank blank tablet. You can do anything you want, but because of the history of, of Star Trek, for example, um, there was, I don't want to say limitations, but the, there was sort of a guideline, like, well, don't do this, do this. This is space. You know, my, my first, I don't want to get into Trek right away, but <laughs> my first Trek score, um, I met with uh, <clears throat> David Grossman, who was the head of music at Paramount at the time. He says, don't listen to what the other guys have done. Um, just treat this as your version of an epic, um, something epic in space, and and we'll give you whatever you want to do. So I had like a 60-some piece orchestra for my first show, and three keyboards, and five percussion. It was it was huge. And, yeah. Um, so so I did that, and um, I wrote this. It was a Star Trek Next Generation, a show called The Tin Man, and uh, and it was very. Um, I guess you could say by today's standards, very over the top. In other words, I had themes for everything. I had a Klingon theme, a uh, Vulcan theme. I mean, it was like, I thought themes were the way to go because yeah. that's what I studied. And I listened to, of course, John Williams, and he's kind of a theme guy. Sure. So, well, I, anyway, I did this big long piece, my first piece with producers all there, and um, walked into the booth, and I was expecting wild. Applause, you know, or something, and they're all like sitting there with their heads down, you know, like, oh, gee, I, what's that about? I said, well, they said, well, that's okay, um, but now go out and do something different. Said, what, do you, what do you mean different? It's a six and a half minute action piece, you know, with uh, a yeah. whole orchestra. And they said, well, no, don't, you know, that those melodies and stuff. We we don't really like those. So uh. Take some of those out, and and the drum thing. No, we don't we don't like the drums. So take the drums out. Next thing you know, it was pared down to this like kind of bare bones piece that, I mean, it works. I mean, yeah. it, but you know, the, uh, philosophically speaking, in some ways, I think the producers were on right on it when they said so the difference really between scoring, a, say, Star Wars or a sci-fi movie that's pretty, like say the uh, Avengers movie that's out, mm-hmm. out um, is that the music is totally in sync with the characterization in other words you know by the, what the music sounds like whether those are evil people good people or heroic people or whatever in track world the writers and producers didn't necessarily want to telegraph that they wanted the, the they thought their audience was really smart and should be able to figure out for themselves whether the characters were intrinsically honorable or maybe not so much um we don't know that the Klingons were, Klingons were an evil empire. I mean, it was up to the listener to make those, or the watcher to make those decisions. And if we put like pompous minor chord music behind that, it sort of colors it. Like, oh, yeah. those are bad people, or but maybe they're not. You know, maybe they have a, a realm of uh, like family values <laughs> that's better than uh, I don't know, other people. So yeah. in a way, they were they were they were right on in that thing, but it made it very difficult to sort of tread water and not come out and say what you really think, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, that's interesting because you're right. You listen to the the the, the music from the the various Star Trek series, and it's they don't telegraph 
how you should feel or what you should think. Um, but when you're writing that music, are you writing it with the intention that the audience should notice it? Or is it just supposed to be there to, to, to set a theme, even if it's only subconscious? Well, there's a little of the subconscious thing, but because we're all ego-driven composers, <laughs> um, we we got to figure out, well, how am I going to get my licks in here and be impressive? Because you don't want to just do wallpaper you know, for right. 15 years. Or you want to do something that, that jumps out or that, that can... Uh, and that was the challenge. Like, How do you write something really unique that sounds like what my music sounds like and and yet still fits the mold of, of the Trek vocabulary and the Trek uh, traditions. Um, and you find yourself second-guessing quite a bit. Well, you know, and I, I would I would talk with Dennis McCarthy quite a bit, and he said, Jay, just never look back. He said, don't don't go back and rewrite anything. You're never going to get done. Yeah. And, and he, he was absolutely right. Um, I don't know if you've done his interview yet. But Not yet, we, no. We all, still, we all still are pals, and we talk about our tribulations, et cetera, with, with doing this. And he says, no, I, I just go left to right. I get on the next page and off I go and I don't look back. Cause you're going to be second guessing the whole score. And then, you know, five days go by, you've only got like 10 minutes written and then you're in trouble. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though. You said when you came on originally, they said, you know, don't worry about what's been done before. Do your own thing. And then right. when you did your own thing, they were like, well, let's try something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think that was, they, it might have been a test. I mean, when I came on, it, it was only because Ron was doing something in Russia or something, and he couldn't make one of the dates. It wasn't, a, I, didn't, I never thought for a minute that I was being auditioned. And as a result, I just went for it, and I wrote whatever I wanted to. In fact, I even went to the mix, and I told the producers, I said, I can't hear the music. Like, what's the deal? So you've got one of the nicest-looking big-time shows on TV, and it sounds like the music is, like, in another another country. You know? yeah. like, what's, why are you doing that? I said, well, we don't like to play the music too loud because it takes us out of the movie, and you know, blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> anyway, it gradually got better. I mean, as the, you know, I did it for 16 years, so I, I saw the progression of how we would um, get more stuff in and, and how much the music could contribute, etc. So it was, it was a challenge, though, like writing truly original music. I mean, even even if there was source music in Star Trek, um, if you saw a band playing or a string quartet, we recorded that music. Yeah. I mean, every, everything was original. I mean, the themes at the beginning and end <clears throat> were the same, but all the all the score was, um, yeah. was original every well, episode. I'm definitely going to come back to source music because I wanted to ask you about that, but I'll, I'll come back okay. to that in a few minutes. Um, okay, sure. What was your familiarity with Trek before you got the job? I mean, were you a fan, or were you just casually like, "Oh yeah, I know that what that show was"? Um, well, you know, my I built spaceships in my basement when I was a kid. Nice. Um, I, I watched, uh, you know, some early uh, space shows on television. Um, when I was in college, uh, Star Trek was on TV, the original series, and so. I kind of watched it every once in a while, but I was not a Trekkie or a Trekker. Yeah. Um, I was not into it at all. I was totally into music, and I really loved listening to, uh, you know, sci-fi music, music generated through uh, influence by science fiction, because I thought those were some of the most creative writers out there doing it. And uh, But no, I was not a fan. And um, in fact, I didn't watch the show before I did my first score. I was I was told not to, so huh. I didn't. 
And, um, you know, I, I'd heard all the stuff. Well, don't, you can't do this again. I said, well, they told me to do what I wanted. So that's what I did. And I was, I was sort of on a feature track at the time. I, I was doing, they weren't big features, but there were some like $50 million, $60 million. Yeah, you were doing a lot of action films. Yeah, big action films with orchestra and, and some scary stuff. And so I, I did a Stephen King film, mm -hmm. Silver Bullet. And um, so it wasn't like I was a rookie. So I, I knew what I was doing and I had my own vocabulary. And so that's what I used. And then I found out that's not really what they wanted. <laughs> but it might have been a test just to see if I was adaptable to like, you know, saying, yeah, sure, I'll change it, you know? Yeah. I, I could have been a butt. I mean, I didn't, shouldn't use that word in an interview. I could have been not nice and said, uh, no, it's my music, damn it. If you don't like it, yeah. too bad, you know? And then they'll just put somebody else's in or something. I'm not sure. But, but no, I'm I'm a kind of an easygoing guy. And the thing that was cool about, you mentioned the, the um, documentaries mm -hmm. and Star Trek, is that I got to work with some of the most intelligent people in the in the field. I mean, these are people whose lives are uh, in like National Geographic world. They're totally into like the environment and 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 you know learning about um, animals that are you know maybe going to be extinct or whatever. And they're they're caring people. They weren't like the typical Hollywood types, if you know what I mean. And mm -hmm. Same thing with Trek. These are these were brilliant people from the the you know, conception of the writers all the way down to the graphic people and you start analyzing like the visual effects in those shows like Dan Curry who did a, a lot of it he's a fine artist and a lot of the uh, matte paintings he would do as, as an artist and then he would do all the computer generated things as well and, and there's brilliant people the directors and the actors were, were um, also very good actors and um, and it would be very hard to like wear a rubber mask for, you know, eighteen hours a day. I don't know how some <laughs> of them did it. Um, I'm I'm just I'm fascinated though to hear that because you came in season three of Next Generation. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, you said you hadn't seen the show. Nope, didn't watch it. So I mean, from just from a consistency point of view for the producers, you know, if if they've got a show with a consistent voice and consistent characterization, and the writers are generally the same, the directors are the same, the actors are obviously the same, wouldn't shouldn't the music also be the same? So I mean, how how did they keep um, that consistency of sound if they're going to bring you in and say, "Don't watch anything, do your own thing"? Well, I think maybe. They might have been looking for a little subtle change in how the music was done. Because uh, even, uh, I'm guilty of it myself. If you have to write, um, say, 15 years of transition themes, yeah. it's going to start sounding the same. <laughs> I mean, just because you're going to go back, when you get in a, in a pitch, the mind stores certain motives and certain harmonies, and it just, it just goes there. And um, I don't know if you've analyzed the music in, in film and sci-fi and, and in track, but usually it works like this. There's something wrong in the show. Like, oh, uh-oh, the bad people or something's going to go wrong, mm -hmm. and the music comes in. It doesn't usually come in celebratory. You know, it doesn't usually happen. Very few episodes, with the exception of like a holodeck show, do you really get to go out there and, um, and play what's really happening. You usually have to play you have to foreshadow the, 
the emotion of the scene, like, uh-oh. And really, when there's an uh-oh moment, all they're doing, really, there's a guy at the end of the camera, and he's shaking it. So it looks like the ship's really going to pummel the earth. You know? But it's just a guy on a railroad track shaking the camera. Oh, my gosh, it's going to happen. But if you put a big, funky, scary cord on there at the same time, you start believing it. Like, yeah. hey, okay, we're going to crash. This is going to happen, etc. So... Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question totally, but I think maybe other people have been doing this for a while, and they said, well, let's bring in somebody new yeah. and see what they do. And and the show, musically, was very well uh, received, maybe not by the producers, but by the fans. And in those days, there was a, like a message board thing. It's not like it, sure. as slick as it is now. But you could write the show, and you know the time frame... It was pretty spectacular. We recorded like on a on a Tuesday, and the show would be mixed on Wednesday and Thursday. And Friday, it's on the air, so you can't look back. I mean, you can't go back and fix anything because there's no time. And we have six hours with a full orchestra to record, mix, and produce all the music for an episode. If if it if it warranted like twenty minutes of music, anything over fifteen minutes, you got more time. So. Um, and when you think about it, you do a movie that has that much music, it might, they might take a week yeah. doing that, or maybe, maybe more. How much time but, did you have to write, though? Well, it would depend. Um, with just the one series, I would have maybe 10 days to write the score. I would get a script. And I, I, I always read the scripts because I, I found those. I, I got my uh, inspiration from reading more so than watching. Um, and that comes about by the fact that I got to meet Stephen King, who is one of my favorite writers, mm -hmm. and he said, you know, nobody's really made a movie of my books or stories that's really believable. He said, because everybody reads the words, and they make up their own visions of what is scary or what's good or whatever. He said, when you put the visuals to it, that's somebody else's opinion. He said, so he said, you should always just go from the, the written word and write to that. He said, you don't even need the movie, which I sort of did, but yeah. um, so I did. I got. I was one of those kind that sort of had a global view of. I could sort of hum the score after I read the script, even though I didn't see the, the movie. And so, you know, the process was then you get a rough cut of the film, and it would be sent out to uh, the producers and the music editor and the composer, and then you have a meeting. You're all supposed to watch that episode. It wasn't complete, but it was pretty complete. You go into a meeting and you discuss where the music starts and stops. It's called spotting the music. And in general, they would tell, like, um, what, they, what they wanted the music to do. Maybe the scene was too slow, so then maybe the music should be faster or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, then we'd have this meeting, and I'd go home, and I'd have about a, a week, really. To, to And I did all my own orchestration. In those days, I did it all by hand, um, manuscript-wise. And um, then you come in. Uh, and record the whole score. And it was amazing, because with me, I probably, at least on having seven or ten days, I, I, got a, I could sleep every night. <laughs> then, then they said, oh, by the way, we're going to start a new series now, and, and you and Dennis are going to be the writers. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Except we're still doing the other series, so now, instead of having ten days, you have an overlap where yeah. the other shows is interfer not interfering, but adding to your workload. So now you, you're, you're cutting it down to uh, maybe six days to write 20 to 30 minutes of music. And you have to write so much music a day. And so if you don't feel good or if you have to take your kids to soccer or something, yeah. you know, well, 
You're working right, late. I lost four hours, <laughs> you know, so I got to make that up. So you just don't sleep. Yeah. So I was sleep deprived for about 10 years. Oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah, it was it was interesting. And um, what was fascinating was I'd come onto this scoring station to conduct the orchestra. I didn't remember writing the music. I mean, I did write the music, but I said, when did I write that? <laughs> It came out of so, a del- delirium at 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, really. And, you know, and, and as Dennis said, you just can't stop. You just, yeah. Just keep going. Could, and, you re- uh, could you recycle the music at all? Like take cues or themes from one episode and just reuse it in order to really, save time? Only, not, not totally, unless it was requested um, uh, to, to recycle. Like I'm trying to think of the name of the, uh, the Borg theme that I did in Voyager. I did recycle that. Um, mm-hmm. Because that was obviously the Borg was um, important enough to have its own theme. So yeah, the Borg got some um, some special treatment. Yeah, there was another couple of crazy looking critters in um, some other shows that did, but (laughs) most most likely not. I mean, uh, they didn't have a, a, a theme for this or a theme for that, and they didn't really want us to use this theme from the show all that much. Yeah. So, um, and just like, no, be original, which is hard. I mean, think, think about your, you're a writer too, and try to try to do, uh, you know, a, a book without repeating the, the word the. I mean, yeah. it's, it's pretty hard. Yeah, it'd be one thing if, like, you know, you had the Captain Picard theme or the the Captain Janeway theme, you know, and it's like when they walked on, whoop, there you go. You're just going to use some version of that theme. But if it has to be completely original, you know, and even the original series used the main theme during the episode. Yeah. And also, you, you're probably aware that the original series, uh, they tracked m- more episodes than they scored. I yeah. Mean, they did a lot of re- recycling. And and also, there were there were union issues now that were different. You couldn't, if you recycled something, you had to pay them, those musicians anyway, whether yeah. you did it or not. And and so I think that, that lent itself to original scoring because... And you have to be paid. If, we, if you're going to be paid, you might as well have them play something. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I know a lot of actors say that they can't watch their own performances until enough time has passed that they've forgotten the script. So it's like they're not actually watching themselves and critiquing it. Can you listen to your music or can you watch shows or films that have your music? Um, and, crit- and critique my own music? Well, I mean, can you listen to it or watch a show and, and not think like, oh, I should have done that, I should have done this, or can you just listen to it as music and not something that you created? Um, not when it's attached to the show. It's hard It's hard to do that. And I do have, you know, I listen to my music uh, as music and not as accompaniment to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm probably more so than some of the other writers. Um, I started out like, as sort of a concert writer. So I, I was writing, and I think a lot of film schools get off onto this tangent, well, I'm going to teach film writing. But if you can't write, which you begin with, um, you know, if, you, if you're writing for an orchestra piece that, that's supposed to be original music, um, writing for film, it's just, you're writing an orchestra piece, but it just has to fit certain things, and it's, it's easier. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I came from a, a sort of a concert background, and... Um, in a concert and jazz background, I guess I should say, because I, um, I, I kind of wrote music for music's sake and not just to be, you know, some um, carpet under uh, <laughs> something else that's going on. <laughs> and it's, it's hard. It's, and it's hard to hear it being squashed by sound effects and, 
and dipped under dialogue. So sometimes I'll listen to my scores, just as scores, especially the ones I thought were, you know, worthy of going back and listening to. But I I rarely go in and watch um, the shows anymore. Um, uh, I sort of had to recently. My my wife is writing a biography about me. And, oh, great! Uh, so she's been she's been researching um, all the stuff and been going in and watching shows and then asking me specific questions about an episode and why I did this and that. And yeah. I think it's going to be pretty good. I mean, it's it's not just about Trek. It's about my whole music career, but it's um, it, it's it's sort of targeted to be, um, it's a general purpose book, but it's also going to be slightly on the educational side. So it's, it's not like a textbook per se, but it's, yeah. it's geared to, if somebody wanted to study the music of Trek, and understand a little bit more about it. I mean, there's been compilations of music of Trek, but not so much as a one composer's view of it. So, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, that's coming out. Hopefully, she has, she's going to finish it this year, so sometime next year. Awesome. We, we wanted to have it out for the 50th anniversary, but I said, well, at least get it out before the 75th anniversary. <laughs> <you know? laughs> there's never a bad time for Star Trek. People will, it will, they'll just eat it up, so I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. I mean, you know, the 50th was um, was quite special, and I got to do the premiere um, Star Trek, the, um, the Voyage um, concert tour. Oh, okay, we, yeah. Yeah, and we did it, um, the premiere was in London, with the London Philharmonic at Royal Albert Hall, and that was that was the highlight of my year last year. That sure, was, that was amazing. Yeah, it was incredible orchestra, and incidentally, it was the first orchestra that I ever recorded with many many years ago. And some of the players were still there, and they recognized me. Oh wow, that's amazing! That's yeah, amazing. It was cool. Um, okay, I want to circle back to the source music we mentioned before. Okay. Um, were there conversations about including more of it in, in any of the shows? Because it seems to me, as a viewer, um, a vast majority of the source music that took place on the show was in a holodeck or the holosuite or, or some version of not reality, I guess. Um, right. I mean, the exceptions are like when somebody like Picard or Data listens to classical music, but there was really not a whole lot of other music in that world. I mean, why didn't well, it, why yeah. didn't anybody listen to music there? <laughs> well, we tried, and the question is, what does twenty fourth century source music sound like? Yeah, you know, there's a bunch of outtakes. I think on some CDs they might have even included some, uh, and they were pretty silly actually when you listen to them. I mean, it was like. Um, a lot of electronica stuff and stuff with beats because obviously people were dancing and doing stuff to music but um, I don't think they, you know I, I think they didn't want to date their shows so much like yeah. you know if you played um, well look at the, the movie this, the, um, the one this, I think it was Star Trek 4 where they go back to San Francisco yes. Yes. And, and they're playing uh some contemporary jazz in the background and whatever. Um, and it does date it. I mean, it's very cool music about the Yellow Jackets, I think. Um, but it was still, um, that puts it into a time frame. Whereas mm -hmm. if there's nothing there really to date it, then it could be, it could be timeless, you know? So, and that's why the classical thing became so prevalent because they were going into something that actually did exist as music 
in, in some reference point. So they can say, yes, well, you know, Picard likes this kind of music, and so therefore they play, or Jada plays the viola, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. yeah, those kind of things were, um, I think it's to protect the time frame. Yeah. So was it a joy then to work on those episodes that did break that mold and allowed you to write jazz or, or some other genre? Well, yeah, it's really fascinating because when we did um, A Fistful of Datas, for example, mm -hmm. which was a complete holodeck show, all the actors are in complete Western garb. They're talking like, uh, you know, Gene Autry and stuff. Um, there's gunfights and uh, all this. They said, no, don't do, don't do that. Don't do Western music. It just won't work. I said, I can't possibly not do Western music. This is in insulting. Like, yeah. What am I going to do? Just coast through through a gunfight or something? <laughs> so finally, I actually tracked to that show with my own. Uh, I, I got a lot of Morricone music. Um, oh yeah. And I sh I went to the spotting session and I played it for them, and and they said, Oh yeah, maybe that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you're right. <laughs> But don't go too far with it. You know, don't go too far. Just, like, just a little bit. And make sure when it's track, you do track. But you can do a, a little bit. Yeah. So we had like like two guitars, a harmonica, and it was it was a blast. Until then, very rarely could you cross over into the holodeck territory and be authentic to what's on the screen. It just didn't want that. And then yeah. I think that show broke the mold. And then we got a lot. Also, they actually read to what the what the watchers write, critique, critiquing the show and the music and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think they dug it because the reviews were sensational. Like, wow, listen to that music. I've never heard music like that. Yeah. And, so we did the James Bond show, and the same thing. Well, okay, but don't don't get us sued. Of course, the writers got sued. But, um, uh, <laughs> was that the uh, Deep Dr. Space Nine episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor Doctor Noah, really? I mean, yeah. come on. It was James Bond without the total thematic stuff, but we had the guitar going, you know, yeah. doing the stuff and the wah wah trumpets, and and then um, it progressed to when they actually brought on um, the Jimmy Darren character in the holodeck, who was a singer, mm -hmm. a, a lounge singer, and um, of course he's a clairvoyant lounge singer, so that makes it okay for track. But <laughs> then we did a live jazz session every show that he was in, and we recorded it at Capitol Records, mm. which is where Sinatra did all of his recordings and stuff. So that was a gas, and that I got to go back into my jazz roots and, and pull that one off. Yeah. 
then it was fun because then again, it's like doing a, a documentary. You're given a palette, like okay, it's jazz from the '60s or so. You know what you know what's going to sound like, yeah. and the tunes were identifiable tunes. And then one show, I got to do, but a bing, but a bang was the name of the show, and I did the whole score in that in that style, and uh, and it was it was quite successful. So yeah, yeah well, those were fun. I mean, music is a character, you know, and I mean, I understand, like you said, when you first came on to Next Gen, they, they didn't want it to overpower the story. They didn't want it to be right. super noticeable. But when you think back to the most memorable episodes of any of the series, many of them are that memorable because of the music, because the music yep. was in some way remarkable and different. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, and you probably go to this question, um, hopefully, um, the inner light. Yeah, that's okay, where that, I was going. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I'll give, I'll do your segue for you. Okay, <laughs> that one, that piece is still remains the most requested piece of music from the Star Trek library. People yep. use it for weddings, or funerals, graduation, etc. And the way it came about was quite quite interesting. I think. I mean, the reason it was a penny whistle which is what the instrument is, is it's not because necessarily the sound of it, it's the look of it. Because if, if he was going to play a flute, for example, mm-hmm. or a violin or an accordion or some other instrument, it would be like in a space. And when you try to shoot a close-up of an actor, they, you want to see his face. Right. And with any whistle, it's a vertical instrument. Yes, he has to blow in it, but his face is still very visible. And so we brought in all different kind of instruments for... Uh, Peter Lauritsen, who was the director. And he did a brilliant job of directing that show. And it was just, that's what um, we just, we came upon. And it, it was metallic because the planet, um, Resican, I guess. Anyway, yeah. it was called a Resican flute. And the one he actually played in the show, um, it was not really playable. It was one that was do- doctored up by the, the set designers okay. and, and stuff. But... Um, Patrick actually did learn to play the instrument. That wasn't him playing in the episode, but it was it was actually Bryce Martin, who was one of our top uh, studio players. And there's a website out there for penny whistle players, and there's been, uh, I just came upon it recently, and there's been all this discussion about the, the instrument on the inner light. And, and I was with a guy who was another penny whistle player, and he was fascinated to hear how it all came about. And it was it was an inexpensive like a $3 instrument that was that played that tune. And um, when yeah. you're talking about source music, I was asked, of course, on that show, I had to pre-record that piece because they had to shoot you know, the scene to it. So in, in all things Star Trek, you have to have an alternate, right? You can't just have one. You can't just say, okay, here's the tune. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to sort of vote on it. So, um, <laughs> so I... I, I read that script and I wrote that tune like right away in like maybe 10 minutes okay wow easy and so so okay now I have to write an alternate I have to make sure that the alternate is much worse (laughs) than the one I really like and I labored over writing the alternate it took me like two days to write the alternate (laughs) version of it and it was it wasn't bad in fact they used it in the show as one of the naming dances or something in the episode but I was so afraid that they would hear both and I had to demo both of them so Unfortunately, they picked the right one, and it became a classic, you know, so, um, and since then, I've developed it into uh, orchestral suite, which is what I did in, in London with yeah. the orchestra, and it's like a six-minute um, 
piece. But the really cool thing about the episode, other than the, the writing of it and all that, is you probably noticed that it, almost every show, when you go to the end of the show, it goes to the Enterprise, zooming through space, and there's big orchestral music on right. it. And in this case, I said, you know, we can't do that. I said, the guys found this flute. It's been lost for a millennium or something, and he opens it up. He's in his room playing it. Why don't you just let him play it out over space when the other... Right. Oh, no, we can't do that. People are going to get killed if we do that. I said, just try it. Just try it. Just go for it. And and I, I had to write an, uh, an outside the ship uh, theme for ending the show anyway, because it's an alternate. And uh-huh. That's what you do with Star Trek. Uh, and finally, they bought the idea of just going out the penny whistle. So and that was got, your idea? great reviews. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so I, that's how... I mean, that, yeah. that, that episode was brilliant just full stop all around but i mean it was that ending you know and it's what i'm saying is like the music is is so much of what makes that episode so memorable but that ending is just so powerful that that's yeah. that's what yeah. lingers that's what lingers and, and remains with you and you think back to that episode and you like i think back to that episode and i i can see a few different scenes in my mind but it's that ending of you know pulling back from the window with him playing and that's that's right. what remains yeah yeah well, that's that's cool, and I I think it would have been so wrong to have um, you know gone out big with a big oh, orchestral yeah. flash thing because that's not what that show was about. No, it know? would not have been true to the um, story. Yeah, yeah. So well, I'm, I, I'm glad, as I said, these are some of the most brilliant people out there working, yeah. and and they they they're smart enough too when they hire a person to do a certain thing, they kind of let them do their thing. I mean, they want to they want to. Uh, I don't want to use the word metal. I think maybe shape, the shape the end result might be a better word, um, because they have a vision. You know, it's like, it's like doing a feature. A director lives with that feature film for maybe several years, and then composer comes in. You get six to eight weeks to finish it for them. Um, they they have to have some input into it. They must know what they hear, and um, in some cases they're they're right on. In some cases they're not. But yeah. Most all of them don't speak music very well. They yeah. know what they don't want. They can tell you what they don't want and maybe play you examples of that. Um, my my early films, um, I hadn't done that many real films, and my first director, who was a Morricone fan, he brought me to his, Bill Lustig is his name, he brought me to his apartment, and we watched maybe 20 Morricone films, some big ones and some little ones. And he said, they'll see how the music does it, see how this works, and look at, look at, this, look at this following shot, listen to the music, that's, that's what I hear. And that really taught me how to get into a director's head, like, well, this is what he's thinking. And so um, I was able to get a good relationship with him because of that. And in television, you rarely even meet the director. The director's mm-hmm. off doing the next episode. So you have the producers, um, it's a little bit of a, uh, of a industrial production because everybody's working so hard and there's a, there's next week's show. Yeah. You know, there's a show on the air. Every, when we did, originally there were 26 episodes and then they were repeated. 52 weeks a year there was a show on uh, on yeah. something, yeah. On network or whatever. So it's it's a tricky business. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I, I just wanted to say... Uh, before we move on from the inner light, that tune, that 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 flute solo is one of, if not the, my favorite pieces of music from 50 years of Star Trek, um, more, more so than than the themes. Um, 
And the, the orchestral suite that you mentioned is one of my favorite pieces of music, full stop. Like, not just Star Trek, not just soundtrack music. Like, I, I, I can listen to that just on infinite repeat. It's just, it, it blows my mind every time I hear it. It's on the 30th anniversary album. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, and, and somebody uploaded it to YouTube. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. but Oh, yeah, there's like 20, <laughs> 20 different YouTube uh, things. I keep um, tracking them down thinking, hey, I might get paid for that one. Now, but, uh, yeah, but, yeah, it's, it's unreal. It's, it's just so beautiful. And it's, um, you know, in, in a franchise that has such notable themes and such beautiful, bombastic, amazing themes... Um, that one just stands out for me as the best. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Are you, no, thank are you, you a musician as well? Uh, my wife is. I'm not. Yeah. Um, I appreciate yeah. music. I guess I'm more like your parents. I appreciate music mm-hmm. and can recognize and, and I, I recognize the uh, the technical skill that goes into it, but I'm I have, don't have any musical ability. <laughs> yeah. It's from my wife. Well, it went to my daughter too, thankfully. So. Okay. Well, you're obviously a good listener, and I, I really appreciate the, the comments and. I've heard that quite a bit, and um, uh, there's also a version of that I did uh, on another collection. My daughter is a musician as well. She plays the flute, and um, the reason I did the orchestral suite um, originally was she was playing in high school with a big combined orchestra of 1,500 people in the orchestra. Wow. I did a version of that, not the one that's on the CD, um, for her orchestra, and she played penny whistle solo oh. so uh, having a daughter who's musical you can re- relate to how that works absolutely we actually recorded it once on another cd um i think it's a next generation cd of mine and i played the piano and she played the penny whistle just oh. a duet and a very you know it was jay and amy unplugged oh i've got i've got to i've got to find that now because i've not heard that <laughs> yeah that was pretty sweet she got her part right i had to keep overdubbing mine <laughs> um so it's no surprise that, you know, we, we've been talking about um, the music for the different series. You know, uh, Deep Space Nine was a huge departure for Star Trek as a whole. Um, you know, I had a lot of complaints at the time. You know, they're not in a spaceship. They're not going anywhere. How could it be interesting? Um, did any of that challenge, you know, I'm sure like the, the writers had that challenge. Like, how do we keep this interesting? The set designers, the costume designers, how do we keep it interesting? Did any of that challenge land on you musically? Like, how do I keep it musically interesting for the, for the viewer? Well, it, it was challenging because it was in a way a little bit claustrophobic in, in terms of 
of uh, until like I don't know what season it was. They had a ship that could go out and explore and stuff. Yeah. But that made it, in some ways, made it more interesting because, and I think the viewers now are coming back to that show and saying, "Wait a minute, this is really pretty amazing. This is, I, I can oh, say, yeah. this is really deep." Oh yeah. Because it was about it was about character study. So, I mean, you had a, a guy working at a tailor shop who was probably a spy. You know, <laughs> so it yeah. was like all these characterizations and people living in close confinement who had relationships and. Um, uh, so I found it actually more interesting because it wasn't like, oh, let's go out and blow up some planet. I mean, let's let's try to develop some some personal things here and write some more, you know, personal music. Like the the uh, cork little quirky cork music <laughs> that, um, would happen, and um, it was it was fun because it it wasn't your typical genre of what space is all about. Yeah, and I think. I think as it progressed, it got pushed into that direction a little bit more. And then you also have to realize that Deep Space Nine and Next Gen were were um, not network uh, shows. They were independent shows that were um, disseminated through uh, independent distribution. So we didn't have a bunch of suits telling us how to do the shows. It was sort of, the, as I mentioned, the smart people who made the shows were mm-hmm. the ones making it. They weren't responsible uh, to a bunch of other folks, and as as that progressed, as when 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 it got to Voyager, um, that became a network. I mean, the network consisted of Voyager and wrestling. So I mean, there wasn't much on, on the network, but um, that's how it started. And uh, and then there was a lot of network people saying, "Oh no, we don't like uh, we don't like Jane's hairdo, so we got to go and change it." Or stuff like that yeah but the, the, the characterizations in deep space nine and i think for writers um the people who did the scripts was really brilliant because they were i don't say hampered but they were they were limited to like well we're not going to go out and explore we're going to explore inwardly and so yeah it was in ways it was more interesting and especially for me because um one of the producers of that show is now my wife. So mm. I got to meet my wife in, on Deep Space Nine. Hmm. So that was... That was One fun. more reason to love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I've noticed, though, I mean, I, I see, I get reports from performance reports that say like, as to what's being played, when and where. And I think the audience for Deep Space Nine has grown ever since um, we have uh, Netflix and Hulu Oh, no and, doubt. And CBS all whatever it's called. Um, it, it's it's yeah. come into its own and as probably, I mean, the, probably the deepest series of Star Trek that was ever made. And it didn't get the recognition it deserved at the time. But I think now people, like you're saying, people are looking back on it and really recognizing just how brilliant that show was. Yeah, I've talked to people that binge watch like an entire year's worth of it. Yeah. Wow, and there's like an arc. Look at the story arc. I know. Oh, wow. I'm in the middle of rewatching it now myself, and it's just oh, it, I'm okay. I'm getting blown away at just how good it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good. It was really good, and uh, and it got better. It got really better towards the end too. Yeah. And some of them, well, I don't know. I think some kind of got in trouble towards the end because they sort of recycled a lot of ideas and and stuff. But I didn't feel that with um, with Deep Space Nine, yeah. especially. Especially when they brought in uh, 
the Jimmy Darren character, um, that really lightened it up. It wasn't. It didn't take itself so seriously all mm-hmm. the time, mm-hmm. you know. And especially when uh, Commander Cisco joined him in a duet on the uh, in the holodeck, like we didn't know he could even sing, um, and we recorded that tune, and he just blew everybody away. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? Like. You're amazing. You sound like Arthur Price. Well, I I wanted to ask about that because, I mean, Avery Brooks is probably the jazziest of jazzy Star Trek actors that there ever has been and probably ever will be. I mean, did he or any of the actors have any sort of input? Like, did you did you work with them on, on any of that, especially that that source, that jazz music that was in Deep Space Nine so prominently? Well, it was um, like I. I didn't work with him that much, but Avery, Avery is just a like, immensely talented guy. Like yeah. I called him on the phone. And I said, "Okay, we're going to do this tune, um, and it, it changes key like every eight bars. So we got to find a place to start." He said, oh, "I can sing in any key, man. What, what, whatever you want. I don't care. Just do whatever you want." I said, "Well, no, we got to. You know, you're singing a duet with another guy, and you guys have to figure it." He said, "No, oh, I can. I can match whatever you can do. Just write it. It'll be fine. I know it'll be fine. I know your work." You're good. You're, and he had he had this whole thing down. It wasn't like ego. He just knew he could sing in just about any key. So I kind of listened to his voice. I never heard him sing ever. And um, and and Jimmy Darren was was um, a little spooked because he he knew he was singing with Avery. Maybe he knew Avery could sing. I, I don't know. But, <laughs> but we did it live with both of them together uh, with the band and uh, and. Avery just strolls in, no rehearsal, nothing, and he just nails it one take. Mm. He, didn't wanna, he wanted to leave. I said, Avery, maybe you could stick around, you know, maybe. He said, no, it's good, isn't it? It's good. <laughs> said, yeah, it's perfect, so what? Go away. You know, Jim, no, Jimmy said, I can't, can I fix my part right there? And, you know, and stuff like that. But, yeah, it was, it was surprising, and um, I wish he had done more um, in the show, but that that was it. I mean, that was, like, the next to the last show, I think, and he... Um, he did, he did great. And, the, the, you know, the relationship between him and his son, Jake, in the show was, like, amazing. And, yeah. Um, there were the, that's where the, those were the kinds of things that made that show so different because it was about those characters. And, you know, it didn't cut away from the characters and then blow something up. It was like, no, we're going to do 20 minutes on, on this particular relationship. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, there were a lot of, groundbreaking things in that show that that were you know fascinating so, yeah yeah it was it was cool i'm glad you're watching it again yeah so am i trust me <laughs> um so next generation reintroduced star trek to tv it makes sense that the music quote-unquote played it safe i guess to a certain extent mm-hmm. ds9 took a lot of risks it was a departure so the music could be more unexpected so what was it like then to work on voyager what kind of environment was that to work in Voyager, right off the top, was going to be much more action. They wanted more action in the show, so that meant more music and more fast music. See, it's like it's like if you do a documentary about birds flying around and being active, you have to write more notes. So, doing a documentary about fish is much better because they go slower. <laughs> so, you know, so you, if you have to write 20 minutes of music and it's kind of like ballads. It's a lot less notes and a lot less measures and a lot less time to write it. But if you do 20 minutes of action every week, um, you're going to burn out because it's like, you know, the stack of music that you have to generate. Like, I, I did the pilot, so I, I bet there was, I don't know, 
in the in the pilot, the two-hour pilot, I bet there was an hour and a half of music. Mm-hmm. And it was massive, fast action music. And um, and that sort of was a directive from the studio. They were like, no, we want action. The fans want action. The guys, It's just guys watching this show. There's no <laughs> women watching. Even though it's a woman captain, the first time ever. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so it was, a, it was a little scary because it was more, like ten times more music than Deep Space Nine. doing Deep Space Nine when Voyager started, so I got time off from it to write the pilot, which was which was good, but um, it, it was challenging because they wanted it to be much more action-driven and maybe more percussion and, and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. in reality, they usually dialed out the percussion and you couldn't hear it anyway, so it, it was kind of, the shaping of it was still kind of the same, there were just more notes, and yeah. <laughs> I guess I could say that. About yeah. it. And there wasn't a lot of opportunities to develop um, a lot of individual stuff, except for maybe the, the when the board got into it big time, and uh, that that was some big stuff there. And and the use of electronics, we got more. I um, I've always been into electronics, but on Voyager um, we had a lot more uh, use of electronics in the in the score, never to replace an orchestra instrument, but to add another timbre to the quality and the sound of the mm-hmm. music. And, mm-hmm. um, so that that was a, a big change for me. And we'd bring in pre-recorded, we'd record the um, electronic music first in a, my electronic studio, and then um, bring that in in some audio storage device and have the orchestra play with the electronic score, which was pretty complicated to pull out and, yeah. uh, and also hard to make changes because the electronic score was already finished so you know in the later later shows it was um, you'll hear more uh, electronic music yeah and it's um, the end game so yeah the show called the end game the last episode I think yeah I yeah. think it was the last or next next to last and um, it's the only one I won an Emmy for I was nominated 10 other times but I actually won for that one so, Congratulations! Um, yeah, thank you, thank you. They say just they say being nominated is just as important. Don't yeah. believe it. No, it's winning is the most important. <laughs> yeah, winning is much more important. <laughs> <laughs> much more gratifying, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, it's um. But well, anyway, I'm, and that one. Yeah. That one, I didn't go. I, I I was nominated ten other times, and I went every time. I had the same speech written and my talks and everything. That one, I was at home working on another show. Oh, no. The Enterprise, and I didn't even go. Because Dennis and I were both nominated the same. And that, yeah. There's no way either of us was going to win. Yeah. And uh, so I was, I was in my studio writing, and I get a call from my wife, and she says, I'm watching the internet, and you, you won the Emmy. Said, oh, I <laughs> no, I away. didn't. <laughs> so I looked on the thing, and they, there's my name, and they have a little picture of the Emmy next to it. 
So I never got to give my speech. Oh. Uh, oh well. That's a <laughs> shame. <laughs> yes, definitely put it in the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have the Emmy sitting on my mantle, and uh, there you go. I you shine it. I shine you could it reenact it, reenact it. Yeah, yeah. Did you so, have a Did you have an opportunity to write a theme for Voyager, or was it always the plan to have Jerry Goldsmith do it? Well, I wanted to, um, but I I actually did write a theme for it, but I, I never showed it to anybody because at the time it was time to record. I don't remember exactly how it happened. I know on, on, I think he was also going to do Deep Space Nine and something happened and, and the same thing, Dennis had written the theme but Jerry never got it in, got his done or I'm not really sure what happened. There was some mm-hmm. scheduling thing and so Dennis got that. So I assumed, well, I'll get to do Voyager. So I, I had a pretty, pretty cool theme for Voyager but then Jerry's is very good so um, yeah. I'm glad to, he got it. Do you, do, you, do you still have yours somewhere on, on... I do. Yeah. I, I can't hum it right now, but I I never recorded it, so you should. I I thought well maybe I'll use it for um, Enterprise, <laughs> and then they went with a song on Enterprise. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Well, I don't know what the view, viewers think of that, but yeah. If it was original, maybe, but it wasn't even. It wasn't original. an original song. No. Do you know what led yeah. to that decision? I mean, what what the thinking was there? Well, I went to a couple meetings, and it was pretty funny because they, they said, "Well, we want to go." different direction with Enterprise. I figured that meant that Dennis and I weren't going to be involved. Uh. But it wasn't it at all. They're, they're very loyal um, people and otherwise they wouldn't have kept everybody around for all those years. Um, but they wanted to use that song and maybe have a lot more scoring along the contemporary feel of that song. And then I think after they got into the song, finding out you know, a lot of people didn't really feel that that was the right way to go. And um, but we did the music for the scoring of um, of Enterprise was again moving forward a lot more uh, contemporary way, but not rock and roll way. It was mm-hmm. like more electronics. In fact, maybe every other show we had to do completely electronic because the budgets were were not the same. And uh, you know, it cost a lot of money to hire sixty musicians and have them play for six hours and when you could get a package with a, a guy in a garage you know it's like yeah oh, let's do that <laughs> that's yeah. much better <laughs> yeah but they were nice enough to figure out the shows that were that needed to have an orchestral score we generally did them orchestrally and what it made sense to do to change you know budgetary wise to, to do it with um electronics then we do it that way and yeah. it just wasn't as fulfilling um I'm a, I, again, I love electronic music, and I have quite a big studio, but it never feels the same. You, you, the computer never says, hey, Jay, that's really a nice chart, you know? <laughs> you, you get finished, and it says save, and that's it. That's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you also wrote a theme for Enterprise, so you should definitely um, record both of your themes, your Voyager and your Enterprise themes, and just put them out there. I think that would be okay. grand. <laughs> All right. For what it's worth, that's my opinion. <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, that. If you had to hold up one score of yours, um, or one or one theme, or one one something that best exemplifies your career that you'd want everyone to hear, what what would you choose? Well, that's a tough question. Um, I think I would choose my first one, a Tin Man. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah. necessarily need to be Star Trek. Anything from your whole career. 
Oh, um, okay. I don't know if that changes your answer or not. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> okay. Um, I would say my score to the 30th anniversary of National Geographic, called 30 Years of National Geographic. Mm. I don't know if, you've, if you know that. I, I haven't, but I'm going to go find it now. <laughs> okay. It, it's a score I did, and it's a... Um, it was all the best images of 30 years of National Geographic photography and um, assembled and put together in various subject matters. And I chose to do, because a lot of it was African-inspired, and I did it with an African choir and electronics and orchestra and the choir singing in Kiswahili. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it was also an uh, Emmy nomination. Didn't win that one either, but it should have. Anyway, it was um, that was my the one I'm most proud of because it's uh, it's just so unique and and different and something not like anything I've really done before. Yeah. So, um, Has that one been released? As an audio? Yeah. Um, or do I need I to find I need to find the special itself to hear the music? Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, pretty much. Worth yeah, it. I will do that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's pretty good. I I think it's uh, it's probably on some streaming thing or something. Okay. Maybe it's on, maybe the, maybe the audio is on, on something. Um, but there's never been like a CD of it or anything like that. Okay. It's just the, the opening alone is good. And it's just, it's just a really good score and, and unique and it's not space music. And it was done while I was doing space music. So it was a cool departure for me. And, um, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And as far as other scores, um, my movie scores, um, Stephen King's Silver Bullet is probably my next um, favorite. Okay. I don't know if you know that one or not. But it's I saw the movie, movie a long time ago, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 That was my big, that was going to be my big break. And uh, <laughs> and then Star well, Trek came along. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, well, that's sort of how it works, you know, like, you can't do both. Yeah. And I started to think, well, I can work 10 weeks a year, I mean, 10 weeks on a movie, and it might be done. And then... There's no, there's no back end from it or whatever. But joining a successful franchise, I mean, that's sort of like a rare opportunity for anybody yeah. that wants to look down the road to the future. So for sure, I'm glad I did it. You know, and I, I get to meet my wife, and that, that was important. And, <laughs> you know, and and it's steady income still, so it's yeah, a good, um, a good living. And, Not a bad decision. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> um. And last question, and I will let you go. What is Star Trek music at its core? Oh, man. That was, that's, you saved the hardest question. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what is Star Trek music? I mean, when, um, you, when you think well, Star Trek music, like, what do you think? What, what, if, what defines it? Uh, well, it's large and vast. And um, harmonically complicated, and um, the note C, F, G, and B flat. <laughs> so uh, that would be the chord that, that sort of um, defines it for me. And uh, I use it a lot, and it's sort of built on fourths. And if you happen to notice, the original Star Trek fanfare is also built on the intervals of fourths. So. Mm-hmm. Um, 
bum, 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 you know, those are yeah. three fourths in a row. And the last three bum, 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 are three fourths. So, yeah, Star Trek music is three fourths. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Jay, thank you so much for your time. And there you have it. Jay Chataway was just, I, I say this so often when I get off the, con- off the phone with some of these people, off the phone or off of Skype, and I'm just blown away. Um, I am not a musician. I appreciate good music. I appreciate the talent and technical skill that goes into it. But I am not a musician myself. So talking to a musician is a little bit daunting, um, but it's just so revealing and so inspiring. Uh, and I, I'm telling you right now, if, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you're a Star Trek fan, please do come back. Hit subscribe. Come on back. Uh, we've got Ron Jones. We've got Dennis McCarthy. We've got Jeff Russo all coming up within the next month. I've already spoken to them. So I've, the episodes are already in the can. And I can tell you they are also phenomenal conversations. You not, are not going to want to miss it. Uh, you can uh, find us online uh, the, at www.thegbbpodcast.com you can find us on twitter and facebook at the gbb podcast i am on twitter at the roarbots um thank you for listening coming back every week we really do appreciate it uh, i will see you guys next time next time take care <laughs>